Well, good morning, Disciples Church. It's good to see you today. It's been a really special weekend uh, to be together with many of you on Friday night, Saturday morning at our uh, Fall Reformation Bakersfield Conference. And we got to study God's Word together. And Dr. Samuel Renahan came up from Southern California to teach on the doctrine of God's impassibility and that God is unchanging. He's without passions. These are, are good things to understand as he's revealed them to us in his word. Help us worship him rightly and fully. Um, just thankful for that opportunity that we've had. And, and what a joy it is to be here together. Just uh, in time of prayer and preparation this morning to just just really praise God for, for who he is, for what he's doing. To think of many of you this morning, uh, reached out to many of our leaders this morning and just just uh, thanking God for them and, 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 and his work and in through the, the people of this church uh, to, the, to the gospel testimony of this city. And, and as Pastor, Paul, uh, Pastor Rob prayed earlier, to the, to the ends of the earth. And so what a joy it is to be together. We're, we're enjoying uh, our sermon series through the letter of Ephesians found in the New Testament. If you'll grab your Bibles and turn there with me now, uh, we'll continue that this morning as we... Um, focus on the last part of Paul's opening exhortation, and specifically in verse 13 and 14. Uh, Here in Ephesians chapter 1, we find one of the most amazing sentences ever penned to paper. While verse 3 through verse 14 are broken down into five sentences in our English translations, they're actually one sentence in the original Greek that Paul wrote, stretching over 200 words. Sinclair Ferguson uh, describes them this way. It is like a waterfall pouring from the lips of Paul as he tries to express the wonderful privileges of being a Christian. It is the great theme of God's amazing grace Uh, The riches of his grace that have been lavished upon us who are in Christ Jesus that are on display in these verses. Paul begins with praise for God for every spiritual blessing for his people and then keeps adding phrase upon phrase and doctrine upon doctrine as he lists the blessings and benefits of what it is to be in Christ One commentator calls verse 3 through 14 the magnificent gateway to this epistle. And in verse 3 through 14, we we see a a plan of salvation, how it began in the mind of God before anything existed other than God, and how he perfectly carried it out through time, and how he will bring it to its perfect and grand conclusion as he ushers us into eternity. It's like a symphony with, with three beautiful movements The first declares the sovereign election of God on undeserving sinners, where he will bless us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The second movement captures his accomplishing of his purpose to redeem many through the substitutional death of his son, Jesus Christ, whereby his elect have the forgiveness of sins and the legal adoption into his eternal family. The final movement, the one that we will study today, which highlights the work of the Holy Spirit, by which those who have been chosen by God the Father, redeemed by God the Son, are sanctified and sealed with the guaranteed victory and eternal life with God forever. The Holy Spirit's work in these things are what theologians call the application. He is The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the loving call of our Lord to reconcile us to himself and apply the benefits of the work of Christ on our behalf. I want to read verse 3 through 14 in its entirety with you this morning. Um, As we prepare to study its conclusion and move on to the last part of this chapter in the weeks to come. And I pray as I read it this morning that you are blessed as these mighty truths wash over you and and that they would stir your soul to worship and to live for our good God. Let's look to God's word together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word, your written word, your revelation that you have ordained to give us, to persevere it, throughout the generations, that we would have it to know you, to to study truths that you've revealed to us, the ways in which you work, the ways in which you are at work, the ways in which you save, the ways in which you, you bring justice, the ways in which you are glorified, the ways in which um, sin offends you. Father, we thank you for this clarity. We thank you for your work through uh, our brother, Paul, and, and his penning this letter, and, 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 and our getting to study it like we are, to take our time, to gather, uh, to be um, refined and, and empowered and, and commended to, to live for you and for your glory, to fight sin, to turn from pride and, and, and selfishness, to, to to let Christ reign in and through us, to testify boldly of these truths to those that you put in our path, all for your glory, for the eternal magnification and exaltation of your holy name. Father, it is a joy to to be here in the company of those that you've ordained to gather with us this morning at Disciples Church. The members of this family, the the children of those members who are being raised up in the truths of God, the prayer that it is your will to save them, for the guests that have found their way here today, who are considering what it might be like to be a committed part of the family of God here with us, that you would do a mighty work in this place, not because of anything in us, not because of anything in me, but because of who you are and what you've ordained to do. You are a good God, worthy to be praised. Speak now your holy truth. Bring clarity for what you've ordained for us this day, and if you will it, this week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, our focus on verse 13 and 14 today. Let's begin in verse 13. In him, Paul is speaking of Christ in Jesus. When those who are saved, when they heard the word of truth, the gospel, and believed in Jesus, they're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul is building to what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. But first, he highlights again the salvation that we have in Christ alone. 
The doctrine of salvation in Christ alone is a vital tenet of the Christian faith. For we cannot err to think that it is Christ and anything else by which we are saved. This was a major focus of the Protestant Reformation um, that remains to be an important Reformation focus for us today in a modern day. Often referred to as Solus Christos, which emphasizes that only through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone can anyone be saved. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus' sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and our reconciliation to the Father. No human merit or good deeds are sufficient to satisfy the righteous justice of God's wrath on sinners. Rather, salvation is solely based on the passive and active obedience of Christ alone, whose atoning death on the cross is the only sufficient substitute for those sinners whom he came to save. The author of Hebrews says it well in the single verse of Hebrews 5, verse 9. He, speaking of Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let me ask you, do you rely on Christ alone for salvation? Is there any part of you that thinks you bring something to the table? Because you don't. If Jesus is Lord of your life, then He is the source of your eternal salvation alone. Listen to Paul's emphasis. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In this short verse, Paul continues to highlight the parts of how God saves us. Let me remind you of the order of salvation as we understand it according to Scripture. On the screen you'll see an outline. First, unconditional individual election. God's choice of who would be saved, made before time, before creation. We spent a lot of time in the previous sermons of this series looking at Paul's emphasis, one of the high points in Scripture on God's individual, unconditional election are found here in Ephesians chapter 1. We got to celebrate God's good work in this. And so if, you've, if you're just joining us, I encourage you, I implore you to take time to open your Bible at home, maybe go to the beginning and, and, and journey through these early verses of Ephesians 1 to set that foundation for yourself according to Scripture. But let's see how Paul draws out other facets of salvation here. The next being the gospel call. And specifically, what Paul is highlighting here in verse 13 is the effective gospel call. When Paul says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, this is true of those whom God gives ears to hear the gospel truth. We call this his effective call. See, the general gospel call is any preaching or testimony of the gospel to any person or group. It is the general proclaiming of the gospel. The work of of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection, the, the, the necessity of Christ alone for salvation, repentance of sin, to turn from sin and trust Jesus alone. Many who hear with their physical ears that gospel general call don't heed it. They don't repent of their sin and trust their lives to Jesus because for them the gospel call has not been made yet effective by God. The effective call is when God works in his elect in his time that only he knows to give them ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. 
A formal definition for effective calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons his people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. We see this elsewhere in scripture in places like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a general proclamation of the gospel truth and there's an effective calling on God's elect in his time to hear, to have what is spiritually dead made alive, to now hear it and understand it and believe in it. John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That drawing is the gospel call being made effective on the person of, of God's perfect choosing in time. A specific example of the gospel call working effectively as God ordains it is seen in Paul's first visit to Philippi. When Lydia heard the gospel message, Acts 16.14 says, The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. This is Paul's recalling for the saints. As he's writing now in verse 13, when they heard the word of truth, not heard it just with physical ears, but heard it with spiritual ears, because that call was made effective for them. The gospel of your salvation. Back to the order of salvation. The hearing of the gospel truth that leads to repentance and faith is only possible because the Holy Spirit has given a person what Scripture says is new birth in what we call regeneration. This is God's sovereign work to make what was spiritually dead in sin alive and able to see and savor the gospel with saving faith. This leads to what Paul says next. Unconditional election, the gospel call, both the general pronouncement of it and then for those God's going to save, the effective call in regeneration. They're given ears to hear. They're spiritually awakened. And then what does that produce is what Paul highlights next in verse 13. And believed in him. This is the part of salvation we call conversion. Conversion is our Holy Spirit-empowered response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our complete trust and life in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The word conversion itself means turning. Here it represents a spiritual turn, a turning from sin to Christ. The turning from sin is called repentance and turning to Christ is called faith. When we speak of belief, it's important to say that knowledge in and of itself about who Jesus is and what he's done is not enough. Even the demons know who God is, know who Jesus is, and his saving works. They know about these things. In other words, they believe he is God. They believe God is God. And they rightly shudder over it. James says in James 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. To believe about the truths of God is insufficient. For surely the demons are damned for eternity. The belief that is saving faith is a trust into Jesus who took on flesh for the forgiveness of sins, who made perfect atonement for those sins, who rose from the grave to conquer death, to, to now, who now intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. Saving faith is a personal trust in Christ. It's not just a belief about the facts of Christ. So when someone says, hey, I believe Jesus is God, 
you got to realize in that simple statement, they say nothing more than the demons correctly say. It is possible to believe something to be true with no personal commitment or dependence involved in it. The fuller sense of personal belief into Christ is indicated in several passages of Scripture in which initial saving faith is spoken of in very personal terms, often using analogies drawn from personal relationships. John, in the Gospel of John, says in chapter 1, verse 12, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. There's a putting your life a totality of reception. It's not a, a, a compartmentalization of kind of adding Christianity or some religion or some, some buy-in. There's a, there, there's a receiving. There, there's a becoming. There's a believing into. This is the emphasis of John 3.16. Although often misread or misunderstood, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John uses a surprising phrase. He he does not simply say whoever believes him. That is, believes what he says is true. That he's able to be trusted. Rather, whoever believes in him The Greek phrase for in here is better translated into. Whoever believes into him. A sense of trusting, of confidence, of resting in. The old, the the ladder of the way you had your old life leaned into yourself or your sin or something else is, is put on to Christ. It's everything you are is in Christ You take on a new identity. The old is gone. The new has come. There's new birth. Mark 1.15 The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you can hear my voice and you are still Lord of your own life, you are still dead in sin, you are still making your own way, deciding your own do's and don'ts and commitments and pleasures. You are guilty. You cannot merit your own justification. You must be dependent on, you must be in the work of Christ. The blood of Jesus must cover you. You must belong to him to be saved. The biblical call is that you turn, you confess your sins and turn from them. You turn from your wicked ways, your self-minded ways, and you trust your life to Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. Be forgiven, be made new to live your days for Him in His glory. That the newest and the best of your priorities, of your time, of your day, is not your long-standing agenda to fulfill a career or a retirement or a lifestyle. It is solely based on what your Lord has communicated to you in His Holy Word. To be a student, to be a servant, to be a, a witness of the gospel for those He puts in your path. A disciple maker of those He puts under your care for His glory, for His name. Back to the order of salvation, unconditional individual election, the gospel call, regeneration, new birth that leads to conversion, belief into Jesus, means there is a legal declaration made that we are justified, that we are declared not guilty of our sin because that sin was perfectly and completely paid for by Jesus and His righteousness is put on us and there's a declaration formal in every way that we are justified now, forgiven of our sin and therefore adopted in God's eternal family.
Because of the work of Christ alone in the elect person's place, God legally justifies that person. Our salvation, our justification is based on the work of Christ alone. In this newly justified person, we are formally brought into the family of God and sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's emphasis as he works towards the end of verse 13. See it with me now. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. First, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is not a part of Christ. The Holy Spirit is not a part of God the Father, the spiritual part, but is indeed and absolutely a separate person within the Holy Godhead. Our statement of faith as a church, you can read on our website, simply says it this way, God exists eternally as one God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Second, let's consider the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit was given by God often throughout the words of the ancient prophets. One special place we see this is in Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 27. I'll read you from the NASB translation. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is God's promise for those he saves. He puts the Holy Spirit in each of us to do his mighty work in the life of the believer. Understand that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something God did in the believers of the Old Testament and the New and still today. The work of the Spirit is critical in God's work for those who have trusted Him throughout history. Now, there is an additional way that the Holy Spirit would go to work in the installation of the new covenant of God at the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the uh, finishing and completion of Christ's work for the Old Covenant, the installation of the New Covenant. And so Jesus himself spoke of great clarity at what the Holy Spirit would come to do in his ascending, Jesus' ascension to the right hand of God. He would send the Holy Spirit. Listen to some of Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, for example. Uh, let's look first at 15 through 17. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Then later in that chapter, verse 25 to 27, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid." Notice that while the Holy Spirit would go to work in a new way in the new covenant following Christ's ascension, that does not mean the Holy Spirit has not been at work in all true believers from the beginning of time. Notice also, as Jesus said in these passages, who cannot receive, be blessed by, or sealed by the Holy Spirit. The world, those still lost in sin, the non-elect, they do not receive the amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. He is only for those whom God chooses to save. 
Praise God that he saw his promise through to give his chosen people saving faith in Christ alone and present and, and, and the presence of and the work of the Holy Spirit to confront and refine us as he comes, as he will come again one day to take us home. Church, may we never play light with the gift of the indwelling or the work of the Holy Spirit. Go back to the emphasis we see Paul give us here in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says that Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This morning, one of our most important objectives is to understand what is the significance of being sealed with the Holy Spirit. First, what does it mean when something is sealed? Reformed theologian Charles Hodge has blessed many of us come after him to point out uh, three particular and important purposes of seal, of sealing something. The first purpose of to seal something is to authenticate that something is genuine or true. There's an authentication that happens when something is sealed. Number two, to mark something as belonging to someone. You put someone's seal on it, there's a mark put upon them of what it or who they belong to. Number three, purpose of to seal something is to make it secure. To authenticate, to mark it as belonging, to make secure. What is helpful to understand is all three of these apply to what true believers in Christ have as we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. Let's take some time to look at these three. Our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms Number one, that we are authentically true children of God. This is a testimony found within oneself by the presence, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As we read in passages like 1 John chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. There's authentication and understanding that it's legit. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Genuine and true children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Number two, our our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms that we are marked as belonging to God. This is a big one. One of the great markers of a true believer is the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. As a visual marker that displays the fruit of God, the work of the Spirit within someone. That they are indeed redeemed if the Spirit reveals His fruit in a child of God. That's often the very misapplication of the fruit of the Spirit by which a believer would think that somehow the Christian life means that now I'm saved in Jesus. It's my job to, to be more loving, to be more fruitful, to do these things. Like somehow the branch can grow fruit. But but the branch doesn't grow fruit. The vine grows fruit through the branch. The fruit, the evidence of the character of God, the evidence of God at work in a redeemed person, is the fruit of not the person, but the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is on display. The evidence that they are marked that they belong to Him. 
when the... Well, let me say it this way first. This points us to the work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. A dead branch, been grafted into the vine, been given new birth. There's layers of sanctification, which is another marker of the work of the Holy Spirit. First, in salvation... Sanctification at salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit and that when people become Christians, the Holy Spirit does an initial cleansing work in them, making a decisive break with the stain of sin and the chains of sin that were in their lives. The the exchange that happens when Jesus takes on our sin and we're given his righteousness. There's a work of God in our being sanctified. Paul says of the Corinthians, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11, also mentioned in Titus 3.5. Sanctification is a critical work of the Holy Spirit to make us holy before God's eyes so that we are declared righteous in Christ and justified and forgiven. Sanctification is also a progressive work, an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer until he comes again and we are glorified. We're made complete. This journey of sanctification in the life of the believer, from salvation, uh, justification, adoption, unto glorification, is the work of progressive sanctification. Also seen in our order of salvation, which I didn't set to queue up here. So, let me read to you question 97 and its answer from the Word of Truth Catechism. What is progressive sanctification? Progressive sanctification is growing in holiness through obedience to the Lordship of Jesus and His Word from a right heart. By grace, it is a lifelong process powered by the Holy Spirit to change us to become more like Christ. In this, God brings forth the fruit of the Spirit within us, love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. These reflect the character of God. In this work, the Bible tells us that we continually are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Paul says in Romans 8, 4, that those who are alive in Christ walk or live no longer according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Another aspect to the mark of the Holy Spirit in our lives is his work in our sanctification and exposing our sin by drawing us into the light. John 16, 7-8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. A hard but vital truth, vital work of the Holy Spirit, If the Holy Spirit is within you, is at work in you, you will not reject the light, you will embrace it. Even when it's hard to embrace it. That that real thing that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, the, the, the work of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. But the true marker of a true believer is we will not go on in unrepentant sin. We will repent. We will embrace the light. Even though at times that is very hard. It's good. It's good news. It's like when someone points out that your fly is down. You are embarrassed. But what are you also? You are thankful that they told you. That they did not leave you to go on the rest of your day rocking an open fly. Right? 
right? You, you don't curse them and then walk away with your fly down. I reject it. I just go on. No, you embrace it. This is the same with the Holy Spirit, but on a much bigger scale than my pathetic illustration. As the sin he convicts us with is very personal and deep. But it is a good thing in the life of the believer because of his great love for us. He doesn't leave us in sin and in darkness. He saves us and calls us out into the light. John 6.13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. It's a great thing. We need to learn to not ignore or dislike the work of the Spirit in this way, but embrace it as a great thing, a gift. This is why it's very troubling, very troubling, when someone who's claiming Christ is then found to be struggling in sin, is confronted with that sin, and they decide to reject it. They decide to just continue on to justify it. They decide to leave the church, to move away from the accountability. It's troubling because in that, they're hating the light. They're they're pushing back the work of the Holy Spirit. They want to be at a church or in a group that's content to leave them alone. To leave them in the dark corners of their sinful habits. But this is not the role of the church. This is not loving. It is not the role of the Holy Spirit. When we close our eyes to the light, the Bible calls this resisting the Spirit. When we close our eyes to the light or disparage what we are meant to see by its brightness, we are guilty of resisting the Spirit as declared in Acts 7.51 or quenching the Spirit as declared in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 or grieving the Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. Listen to Paul's encouragements in other letters to walk by the Spirit. Romans 8.5-6 For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh want the things of the flesh. They don't want the things of God. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Galatians 5.25 If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Embracing the work of the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to refine us, to produce the fruit of the Spirit is a major marker of our belonging to God and that we are not superficial in our faith or just plain religion. Which is God in his word declares again and again is all too often in people. Number three, our being sealed by the Holy Spirit confirms that we are secure in our salvation. The security and seal of the Holy Spirit leads us to see and savor the guarantee we have in the Holy Spirit. This is where Paul moves to next in verse 14. Let's read it in its entirety and then do business with this third reality of being sealed in the Spirit. Verse 13 and 14 together. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our being sealed in the Holy Spirit highlights the security we have, the guarantee we have that we will finish the race and acquire possession of the great prize of eternal life with God. Paul made this same clarity in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. 
and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And then again in chapter 5, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The words of Scripture time and time again, church, speak of our security and seal in the power of the Holy Spirit. Consider with me why this is great news why this catapults our soul to abounding faith and joy in our lord this is truly good news because we live in a world where nothing is truly secure and certain you know this well i don't have to convince you of this of how much uncertainty there is there how many things are not going well how many things the reality the brokenness of the sin of the world are 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 struggling are are painful are working against you consider the different ways that god's word shows us that we can stand confident in the guarantee of god that that we whom he saved will remain his and that he and that we will acquire possession of the inheritance to be with him forever. Speaking of his elect, Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear Jesus guarantee? No one will snatch them out of my hand. The hand of God is no small thing. It's actually not really a hand either. It's anthropomorphic language. God loving us to use language we can understand the concept. Used to make a point. God is spirit, does not have a hand. But the grip of God, church, is unbreakable. Amen? Amen. In other words, if God has you, if you are blood-bought with His perfect Son's blood, adopted into His family, sealed with the Holy Spirit, you are vouched for transferred from slavery into his kingdom, made new, and now secured in his powerful grip. Let me ask you, if God has you, if the seal of the Holy Spirit is upon you, who's going to get you out of that? No one. Nothing. Colossians 3.3, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Those who have died to sin because of Christ's sovereign saving work in your life, you are hidden with Christ in God. That word hidden there means secure. Kept from anyone who might try to take you out. Can they find you to get you out? No. Why? Because you are hidden in the power of God and the perfection of God. The implications of this truth is staggering. Our society wants so badly to be assured. The problem is there are few things that are anywhere near close to certain. We joke that nothing is certain but death and taxes. If anything, that just helps us see how bad it is. As hard as you try, as hard as I try to keep my family safe and secure with with barriers and walls and and moats and tanks and force fields and and guns and whatever else I could invest into, however deep of a hole I could make to put us 150 feet underground in the most secure room ever made, 
12 gauge in my hand, pointed at the door. And yet still, the right kind of bomb, the right kind of implosion of the earth. And what's most ironic is the smallest microscopic entity could completely annihilate my family. Are they secure? Is, are, is it certain in this life? No. To, to put your hope, your joy in these things that are temporary is to fix them on stuff that is breaking down, dying, leaving, abandoning, betraying every day. why this is so huge game-changing news for those who are saved by the blood of Jesus and sealed with the Holy Spirit are hidden are secured in God we have a guarantee of eternal victory Jesus continues John 10 29 my father who has given them to me is greater than all And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. The the highest power is God. And He is the one who secures our eternity. Understand, your security is solid because it's fixed in God. Church, we must walk by faith in these things to not look at them through the power of man, but through the power of God. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. Church, we are secure in his grip. We are fixed with his seal. We have his guarantee. By God's grace and work we are saved. By God's grace and work we are kept secure. Peter says it clearly in 1 Peter 1, 5. By God's power are being guarded. Here's why this good news is good news in the here and now. In the midst of our exile, in the midst of great loss, in the midst of many things not being secure, many of the treasured things that are temporary, that are lost, undone all the time. Our hope is not in these things, church. The moment it is, is the moment you begin to be undone. There's an exile call that God's put on our life. And many times it is our very suffering that He uses to make the loudest proclamation of this good news of the gospel the Holy Spirit church is present and active in guarding us this is a sweet reality we see what Paul's highlighting the seal of the Holy Spirit the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in your life is the guarantee of your finishing the race unto glory This is that high crescendo of this magnificent symphony he's been giving us in verse 3 through 14. Our security is in God's infallible commitment to fulfill the the conditions of our eternal standing with him. A common question or concern that arises from the flesh is to ask, can the truly saved fall away, be taken away, be lost, or abandon ship? Can they lose their salvation? The answer, according to Scripture, is clearly no. They will persevere in faith by God's grace unto the eternal inheritance God has prepared and protected them for by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in them and has sealed them. Those whom God elects, He gives new birth, He gives saving faith, He gives justification, He gives adoption, and will one day give them glory. This is Paul's high point in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He doesn't say except for those couple that got away. It's not there. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is critical and it's highlighted in our being sealed in the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most precious truths of Scripture for the born-again Christian. It is a great comfort to know, especially in those seasons where you're really struggling with some sin. That your salvation is not linked to your performance. If you're truly saved, you're saved. If you're truly saved, you will repent. If you're truly saved, you will endure in faith. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6 
The perseverance of the saints is a great doctrine that tells us God keeps his saved people forever. The elect are saved and eternally secure by God's power and promise. Because of grace, God works so that those whom he has chosen and given eternal salvation by the power and work of the Holy Spirit are enabled to persevere in faith forever. A person who shows that he or she was truly saved by God by persevering in faith in Christ until the end. If they don't, they prove to have never been saved, is the teaching of Scripture. Not that they lost their salvation. Not that God erred in trying to get them. God did not send His Son to pay for the sins of the elect, only then to have them receive eternal wrath for that sin. That would mean that Christ's work is incomplete and or ineffective. Think about the accusations you make on God when you declare that one can be lost from their salvation. They can walk away from it. God does not pour out wrath on sins that have been paid for. Why? Because his wrath has been poured out. It was declared finished. If it wasn't finished, then Jesus is a liar. Think about the accusations we make when we say such things. If Jesus atoned for, propitiated, paid for our sin, if it is finished, if God is satisfied, therefore declares us justified and adopted and puts his seal of the Holy Spirit in us, on us, then how can we all of a sudden be outside of that and under his wrath? It simply doesn't work that way. The thinking that the truly saved can lose or leave their salvation is the spoiled fruit of an unbiblical teaching that somehow we contributed to our salvation, somehow earned part of it, and therefore somehow can lose it or be demerited from it. it, it it's an idea birthed in a false gospel that has plagued much of the modern church. And what a win it is to see people who were raised with such a belief learn the truth and repent from such a belief. The Bible teaches that God's elect, God saves, God justifies, God perseveres those whom he chooses. This means not one drop of Jesus' atoning blood is spilled as waste. And at no moment can we slip out the back door of the holy presence and power of the Holy Spirit. God, I'm sorry that many who have proclaimed you as almighty have then believed such a heresy. That we are so skilled to slip out the back door of the holy power and presence of the Holy Spirit. No, he has set his seal on us, church. God will not lose any that he has saved. John 6, 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. Amen? He did not make a mistake in their election. He did not make a mistake at the cross. He did not make a mistake in their new birth. He does not make a mistake in their perseverance unto glory. Praise God for this good news. Praise God for his guarantee of our inheritance kept until we acquire possession of it for his eternal glory. And then rejoice with me at this grand finish that leads us into song this morning and propels us into ministry this week. I'll read you verse 13 and 14 again. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Surely the praise of God's glory is our highest aim, our greatest joy, both now and forevermore. May we sing in response this morning and every morning with confidence that we'll forever praise his glorious name. Father, we thank you for this time together, this, this morning to, to gather and to, to fellowship, to, to make war with the excuses that might have kept us from being here today, to be here, to listen, to hear to, to be confronted with the truth of the word of God, 
to do business with these things. I pray that we would continue to lean in, continue to be uh, sanctified. That for those that you intend to save would, would trust and believe in Jesus alone for salvation and be new, be sealed. For those whom you've sealed, we'd walk in the confidence and the joy of this good news, the truths of your scripture that propels us forward, that puts our hope on eternal things, not on temporary things, that our eyes are fixed on these sweet truths and not on the constantly fleeting, upsetting, upside-down realities of this life. May we be people of faith and not people of the flesh. And so we sing, and so we worship, and so we testify the name of Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.